We've entitled this morning's message, Mary Revisits the Tomb. We are on Sunday morning, not today, but in our text in chapter 20 and verse 1, you can see that. It is Sunday morning and Jesus Christ has risen. There are many witnesses in relationship to the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And we are considering some of the evidences of that resurrection as we continue through John. For example, we have already seen the tomb itself. That is, the stone was rolled away, recalling the fact that it was guarded by soldiers. And yet as the women arrive, the soldiers uh, are in an um, uh, amazement because of the resurrection itself, and the stone is gone. The grave clothes in the tomb is another witness or testimony. They're still there. Jesus is not, but they're there. They're neatly there, and they represent the body that was there, but the body of Jesus is gone. All of that is seen in the witness of the tomb itself. Then you have the expectation of the, the folks that went to the tomb, the women first. They came to anoint the body. They were not expecting the body to be gone. And yet we find that when they get there, the body is gone. We find uh, Peter and the disciple that Jesus loved, and we've identified that as John. They were surprised. They were not expecting it. They should have been. They had been instructed. But they were surprised by the body being not there. And the Lord Jesus Christ had risen. And so there were others as well. And as we continue through John, we will see many, many other witnesses to the fact that Jesus Christ did rise from the dead. But also, as we come to this text, you've heard the statement that I'm going to make right now many times from me, but I will say it again. I, as a pastor, am absolutely amazed at the timing of things as I study the Word of God. As you know this church, you know that we believe in expositional preaching. Verse by verse, book by book, chapter by chapter, and there isn't anything that we won't touch when we come to it. We will not avoid any issues. We will not just make issues for the pulpit. And it is absolutely astounding to me where we are and the timing of it. Why? Next we come to Mary Magdalene. Let me give you some facts this morning, and then let me deal with a few things here. Because in our text, we have Mary Magdalene visiting the tomb a second time. Facts. Number one, Mary is from Magdala. We mentioned that last week. That's the area that she grew up in and became known as Mary of Magdala or Mary Magdalene, as we know it today. That is the northern area of Galilee, right above the Sea of Galilee, near the shore, and so forth. Number two, fact, she was healed from demon possession. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 8? Keep your finger in John 20. Luke chapter 8. I want to read the first two verses. And as we get prepared to read that, let me repeat to you and remind you 
that it is the Word of God that is our standard. When you want answers, you go to the Word of God. When there is questions in your mind, you go to the Word of God, not any man's opinion. We need to know what God says. And the only way we get assured of that is to get the message from God and to check it out. In Luke chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, soon afterwards he began going around from city, from one city and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits, that's demon possession, and sickness, and then notice, Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom, specifically, seven demons had gone out. And I'll stop there. So we know that she's from the area of Magdala. That's verified. We know that she was demon-possessed. That's verified. We know that she had seven demons in her. We would not know that apart from God's word revealing it to us. Verified. And so she was a demon-possessed woman that God had delivered from that. Jesus Christ had miraculously healed that. And I would not recommend you playing around with demons today, by the way, as a side issue. But he had healed that, and she had come to trust in Christ. Those are the facts. The following is false. The following is fallacy. The following has no evidence whatsoever. What is it? Number one, that she was a prostitute. That is very commonly even among evangelicals said. There is no scriptural basis for that. And certainly the text that is used, and I didn't read it, is Luke 7, just before chapter 8 where they identify the woman at his feet as being Mary Magdalene. But that is not said, and it's very highly unlikely that Dr. Luke would have presented that in chapter 7 and then identified Mary Magdalene as a demon-possessed woman if it was the same woman. And so there's no scriptural evidence, number one, that she was a prostitute. Number two, there is no scriptural evidence that she was the wife of Jesus. None. None whatsoever. Now listen. Here's the timing. There have been Gnostic teachings throughout the years. Now, if you're not familiar with Gnosticism, I'm not going to give you a dissertation on it right now. I will make it as, simply, as simple as I can, and it's really not doing justice to it, but I will put it this way. That Gnosticism basically looked at anything that was material was bad or evil and the spiritual world was okay or good. And there was a lot of Gnostic teachings throughout the centuries, and in those Gnostic teachings, you would find some references to the fact that Mary Magdalene was the, as a heretical teaching. There were many other heretical teachings since the days of the apostles that existed. That is a fact. There were all kinds of things that were considered heretical teachings. There was also the teachings of the Nag Hammadi's findings, which were found in Egypt. And in case you're not familiar with that, there are 52 texts that are there that were discovered, and they were Gnostic teachings, which means they were heretical teachings. 
They were discovered in 1945. Those also have things in them which are heretical. Then there is, though I never spoke on it, the Da Vinci Code, which movies have been made of and so forth, and I don't waste my time talking about those things. Why? There's no scriptural basis whatsoever, and they come from documents that were heretical documents to begin with. And now, in 2012, in the month of September of 2012, we are now faced with the gospel of Jesus' wife. And in case you're not familiar with it, that it was in the headlines this week. In fact, on Tuesday, it was the headlines of the New York Times. I read the article. It has been throughout the news media all week long this week. All different type of outlets. CNN jumped on it. Some of you may have seen some things. Some of you may not have seen some things. It is important, folks, that first of all, you check out the facts, and secondly, you check with the Word of God, which we are going to do. Why? Because Pastor Dan wants to get off on a tangent. No, because it's this Mary Magdalene that's coming to the scene of the tomb in our text. That's the amazing thing to me about the timing of this. And we want to know a little bit about her. Well, let me get back to this gospel of Jesus' wife. That came about through a professor by the name of Karen King, who is a professor at Harvard Divinity School in our wonderful state of Massachusetts. It is involved with a faded papyrus fragment as, and I quote, smaller than a business card, and that was the way the New York Times quoted it in the article that I read. It's smaller than a business card. It is written on both sides in Coptic language. And they indicate that, and she has been careful since her original release, but is now saying it may, and I quote, may indicate that Jesus was married. Let me tell you some things. First of all, fact, she released that document and she released this statement before, still to this moment, before the document could even be tested for authenticity. That is not the way you do things. Number one, you let the document be tested to see whether it's authentic, uh, authentic excuse me, or not. We'll spit that out, okay? She released it before, and it was her intent to release it before, in her own words, if you go to her website, which I did, and read it. She, so that you know, with no apologies and no secret to it, rejects traditional Christianity. She's a professor of Christianity and Gnostic teachings at Harvard, but she rejects traditional Christianity and makes no bones about it. She is intent in her own writings, in her own words, on bringing women to the forefront of Christianity. That is part of her intended agenda. No bones about it. She has authored 
some of the following, and I've only given you a couple of things. And this is just so you understand the source that's behind all of this controversy now throughout the world, not just in the United States of America. She also authored The Secret Revelation of John. Interesting. She also, listen carefully, authored the book The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Of Mary, excuse me, let me be exact, of Mary of Magdala. She authored that book. She has an interest in Mary of Magdala and is bringing her to the forefront. She also authored, co-authored actually, The Gospel of Judas. Ever hear of that? And The Shaping of Christianity. She has also issued other publications such as Images of the Feminine in Gnosticism to bring that to the forefront in the feminists that have been found in Gnostic writings. She has also authored, listen carefully, a publication called Women and Goddesses Traditions in Antiquity and Today. Women Goddesses of Antiquity and Today. I say all of that so you understand What's behind this writer who has brought this to the forefront, first of all? The Washington Post, interesting, as I was studying, and as I was actually dealing with the text, but trying to keep current on what was coming out, the Washington Post, on this Friday, in the middle of my study, published an article of which you can go to it and look at it yourself on the front of the Washington Post. Uh, but this is the part I want to give you. It said many things about this particular argument right now and listen carefully and see how it ties into even some of the things that she's been involved in writing. And I quote, but what this new discovery does do is to provide additional confirmation for and body of evidence already mounting for those other recently discovered, other recently discovered, early and it's still part of the quote, Christian sacred texts. Most pointedly, the Gospel of Thomas. That is not a sacred text. That was not part of the quote. Also, the Gospel of Mary of Magdala. That's not part of the sacred text. And the Gospel of Philip that a group of very early Christians remember a version of history quite different from what eventually became the official sanctions story. I'm only quoting this. I almost don't want to read it, but I will. They remember that Jesus' relationship with Mary was far more than just with a pious devotee are a recovering prostitute. And I just told you, she's no indication it's a prostitute. They remembered, that is, these people who are coming up with these stories, they remembered that the relationship was spousal in nature, and that she, that is Mary of Magdala, was his designated lineage bearer. That ought to make you squirm in your seats. 
That's, and that's end quote of the Washington Post. So what of all this stuff that's going on right now? And what of this Mary Magdalene? Let me be right to the point. Clearly, the Bible, which is our standard, nowhere in Scripture ever talks about Jesus being married to any woman. Be clear about that. Second, Jesus Christ's mission as God. This is deity in the flesh. Jesus Christ's mission as God was to take on flesh. Why did he take on flesh? He came as the Messiah to be the sacrifice for sin. He, and this is all supported by scripture. That's why he came of the Father, out of his love for mankind. He came only as the Messiah of God. He came to save sinners. He came to fulfill the complete will of the Father. Period. He did not come to bear or to procreate children. In fact, listen carefully. He is God, very God, which people want to deny the deity of Christ. And he didn't have to procreate anybody. Because if he wanted, he could create people. He created the entire universe, according to scripture. He didn't need any physical activity. He could have just simply said, while he was on the earth, Bill come into existence, and it could have happened. Let's not lose focus on who Jesus Christ. He had no interest in that whatsoever. He came for the sole purpose of fulfilling the Father's will, and that was to pay the penalty and price for our debt. And without that, there is no salvation and no hope for you and I. He didn't even have a home to lay his head down that he could call his own. He had no wife. He had no physical children. That was not why he came. In fact, in Revelation chapter 21 and in verse 9, his bride, specifically called the bride of the Lamb, is the holy city Jerusalem and all of its inhabitants. Not some children on this earth. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, 4, the marriage relationship of the husband and wife is specifically identified as the mystery of Christ's relationship to the church, not to some physical woman at all. In, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 2, I'm giving you verses, you can look them up. The church is called the chaste virgin of Christ. When you're talking about a relationship in the sense, when you think of the marriage relationship, I just covered this with the marriage class in Sunday school. That was related to partnership. And there was some, a woman created so that she would be a suitable mate. God does not need a suitable mate. He's satisfied totally in and of himself. He creates human beings. And we are subject to him made in his image and likeness.
So it is the holy city, Jerusalem. It is the inhabitants of those holy cities. It is the church that's referred to all collectively as, if you want to use the expression, the virgin bride or the chaste virgin of Christ. Notice at his death, and I could go on. These are just a couple of reasons that I'm giving you so that you understand what the scriptures say. At his death, Jesus Christ, what did he say? He said to John, take care of my mother. Had he been married, his primary responsibility would have been to a wife, and he would have been saying, take care of her. And by the way, Mary Mag of Magdala was there. And he said nothing about taking care of her. Why? It was not his wife. It's very clear. The scriptures, the scriptures speak out about the fact of who his mother was, that Joseph was not his father because he was born of the Holy Spirit, that he did have half-brothers, and he did have half-sisters. The scriptures are very clear. And yet it says nothing about a wife, don't you think? that it would have had he been married? And I think it's enough said. The point is, folks, don't be so gullible because somebody comes along with an agenda to try to prove something that's trying to undercut your scriptures. Don't let it shatter your world. Go back to the word of God. Mary of Magdala was not the wife of Jesus Christ regardless of what this woman or anybody else says. Scriptures don't bear it out. In fact, Mary Magdala was demon-possessed, brought out of that, and came to saving faith in Christ. And you'll notice how he treats her in the text as well. In our text, Mary was the first to visit the tomb, Mary of Magdala. The tomb had been opened. You remember, she ran to tell Peter and the beloved disciple who we identified as John Peter and John have a foot race. They come and inspect the tomb. And as they inspect the tomb, they then left. John had come to believe, we learned last week. This is now Mary's second visit to the tomb as we come to verse 11. Apparently, because there's no evidence of it, she didn't run into John and Peter. They didn't cross paths when she was going and Peter and John were leaving. And again, to reiterate the things that we've been learning because of all the false teaching that is around. Did she go to the wrong tomb? No, she was there already. She knew where it was. She got there a second time. And it's a little later in the day. It's not dark. She knows what she's doing. And she comes weeping. What does she run into? Verses 11 to 13 in your outline. She runs into some unexpected guests. Who are they? First of all, two angels. Now, you can look at the account, verses 11 to 13. I already read it. She comes there. She's weeping. She looks into the tomb. And then what does she see? She sees two angels. It's rather interesting the way they are because one's sitting at the, uh, where the head would have been and one is sitting where the feet would be. That's what it says very clearly. So that's rather interesting about the tomb setting and so forth. We notice that she's not impressed. That, that kind of hit me. She's not impressed by I mean, I think I would be impressed if I saw an angel. You know, I don't see an angel every day. Uh, 
and I know you guys can get romantic and so forth and so on, but I'm talking about a real angel. These are two real angels sent from heaven. She's not even impressed. She just starts a conversation. That also tells you, by the way, that spirit beings can converse. Tells us a little bit about that. She was still expecting, again, the concept of the disciples making up the story of the resurrection. How foolish is that? She's expecting to find Jesus dead. He's risen. So she was surprised again. And what happens is they confirm the resurrection to her. You don't see it all in John, so go back to Luke 24. Let's just go there for a moment. Luke chapter 24. See a little bit about this conversation. By the way, on what I spoke about Mary Magdalene, I was surprised maybe a lot of you haven't even written that, read that material. You're going to, because it's all over the news. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 8. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing their spices. We saw that last week. They had been prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Uh, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, two men suddenly stood near, uh, near them with dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. We find out these are two uh, uh, angels. And what happened? They said to them, why watch do you seek the living among living one among the dead he is not here but he is risen remember how he spoke to you when while he was still in galilee saying the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men be crucified and the third day rise again and they remembered his words that's part of the conversation that goes on with them and you see that what happens is they find out that Jesus Christ is resurrected from the dead. And so you have this conversation in John's text. You go back there with two angels identify he's not here. Come and see. And she thought they stole him away. And then what happens is she gets another visitor. It's the unexpected risen Savior, verses 14 to 16. That's where I want to look in John chapter 20. When she had said this, she turned around. Notice, she saw Jesus standing there and did not know it was Jesus. Now, that's rather interesting. How could she not know it was Jesus? That question's been asked. It's interesting to read some of the stuff that's written on it. Some have said she didn't recognize Jesus because of her tears. You know, you cry and your eyes get blurry and she couldn't make them out. Others said... It was too early, it was dark, and she didn't have good eyesight. Others have said it wasn't really him. And on and on it goes. Um, consider, that's why I had you read the ones on the Emmaus Road, that one of the possibilities might be that God just blinded her eyes in the sense that she didn't recognize him. Why? Because in the Emmaus Road, at first they didn't recognize it was Jesus. But let me say a couple of things already to help you with a resurrected body. It was a physical body. They could converse after the dead. They did recognize the, uh, someone as a person, but they didn't recognize it to be Jesus. Now, why wouldn't Mary recognize? She's going there, well, let me give you some other things to consider. What was the last condition that Mary saw Jesus in? A, the last one was, he was wrapped up in bandages. 
And before he went into that, she remembered Jesus as a bruised, beaten, bloodied life. And as the scriptures say, almost not even recognizable, according to Isaiah chapter 53, as a man. That's the last condition she sees him in. Dead. Physically dead? Yes. And now she sees someone who's well. Now she sees someone talking to him. And let me also say, he's in a glorified body. How do you know that? Because he's going to vanish away. He's going to, in a little bit, in John, you're going to see him go through a wall, outside of a wall. Materialism has nothing to do and affect him whatsoever. Let me encourage you. Not only is there life after death and is there a promise of the resurrection, but it's a real body that can be identified, that can communicate. But just as the scriptures say, the resurrected body is a spiritual body. That is equipped for eternity. This one is not. And she's talking with a risen Savior who's now equipped for eternity, though he has not yet ascended. And for whatever reason, not given to us in Scripture, she doesn't at first recognize him. However, watch. She mistakes him, obviously, uh, as you look at it, supposing him that he was a gardener. And if she's mistaking him from that, it's a real resurrected body, not a vision but a real body, supposing him to be the garden. And so she says, tell me basically where you've taken him, and I'll go get him. And all he does in verse 16 is simply say, Mary. And by God's sovereign work, by those words, she then turns around and recognizes that this is Jesus. That's all it took. With those in the Emmaus Road, it took the breaking of the bread. It took them recalling now as their heart was warmed, as he spoke about the scriptures in regards to himself. When Mary hears, hears his voice call out to him, Mary, now that doesn't seem too shocking to you and I, but that was what God used. Why do you think that might have happened? I think we might have a hint of it. Let's go to John chapter 10. I think we already studied it. John chapter 10, to get to the heart of the issue, verse 3. To him the door opens, and the sheep, what? Hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. Leads them out. He puts forth all his own. He goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him. Why? They know his voice. Get down to verse 27, same chapter. There's some, a couple of other verses in between. Verse 27 says, My sheep do what? Hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. People know when the real Jesus of the Bible. People come up with other Jesuses. Listen, the only Jesus that saves is the Jesus of Scripture. The one who came here for that purpose. The one who was resurrected. And the only one who is the true shepherd, the true sheep, recognized that voice. Others are followed, and other 
Jesuses are followed by people of the world, but the true Jesus, the true sheep, will follow. And so as he says to her, Mary, there's no question. She recognizes him and says to him, teacher. She knows it's the Savior. What is that? That is verification. That's another witness, folks, that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. She didn't expect him risen. Now she finds him risen. Now he's in a different body. She doesn't get referred to him, uh, referred to by him as my wife. She doesn't get referred to him by anything else other than by her name, Mary, as a disciple or as a sheep. Nothing more. Nothing more. That's all it is. Then he gives us some unexpected instructions. Notice what happens. I can imagine, and by the way, if you don't think a guy would have done this, I think I would have. If I had been there, I, at least I hope I would have, and saw my Savior risen and I discovered that this is it, he's really alive, I think I probably would have knocked him over just going after him. And that's what you've got. It's normal emotions. She's not clinging to him out of any other reasons than she's clinging to him because she sees him alive and she knows it's true. This is the Savior. He not only died, which he did and he had to do, but he is risen. And she's clinging to him. She's holding on to him. And notice, you don't hold on to a vision. Try it sometime. You won't get anywhere. You'll be holding on to yourself like this. Okay? You don't, it doesn't happen. She was holding on to a real person, clinging to him. And he has a, a message. And it's a message for all drivers. Stop and then go. That's what he says. He says, stop clinging to me. And we don't have any question about why. He says, for I have not yet ascended to my father. Stop clinging to me. This isn't the time. This is, by the way, not the second coming of Christ. Well, how do you know that? Because the text tells you. He's going back to his father. He'll be back again. And then when he says to go, he gives them a message that she wasn't expecting. What do you mean? He tells her to stop clinging, and he says, go. Why? Because when a person has come to Christ, there is a new relationship and a new message. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. What is it? You find it right there in the text. He said, go to them. Stop clinging, and he says, go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God, in your God. That's powerful. Why? First of all, it's the first time he says, my brethren, in that sense. He's referred to them before as slaves. He's referred to them in our text that we've already studied as friends, but now brethren. There's a new relationship. Why? Jesus Christ is the head. Those who believe are the body. They belong to him. It's a unique relationship. They're the only ones who are truly part of the family of God. And he's got to go back to his father because why? He came to accomplish that mission. That's what I said even about dealing with Mary of Magdalene. He came to accomplish the purpose of, according to 1 Corinthians, dying according to the scriptures, being buried according to the scriptures, and being raised according to the scriptures. And it's happened. Now he's going to be around for about 40 days, and then he's going back to his father 
waiting in heaven, interceding, which he still is doing right now, and then he's going to come back. But this was not the time. And we can call him our father. And we can call him our God. You notice that. My father, my God, and your God. Why? Because of this new relationship. And it only comes through trusting in the Savior. It is the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. The good news is Jesus Christ is the true Savior, authenticated by the witnesses around him, but more importantly, authenticated by God and the angels and the firsthand witnesses that were there that saw him and touched him. Go with me to Hebrews chapter 2 for a moment. I'm going to go to a couple of passages. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified believers are all one, are all from one Father. Excuse me. For which reason, isn't this great? He is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Quoting from the Old Testament. Brethren, a new relationship. That's what happens. That's what being born again is. It is a being born from above. Being born again. Having new life in Christ through trusting in the risen Savior. The one true Savior of the Bible. Also, we would find even in the beginning of a couple of other texts, that the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the book of Acts, uh, was seen, was touched, and so forth. Now let me ask you a question before we close today. Jesus Christ is risen. Mary sees him. She's got a new message. Go tell the brethren. And by the way, Mary says, I've seen the Lord, in verse 18. She goes announcing this, and that he had said these things. They, she goes and tells them. And that's what we're to do, by the way. We're to go and give the message What's the message? It's the same one. It's the good news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. It's the gospel that he died and paid for our sins. And too many of us have stopped and we're not going. We need to be going and giving that message to other people. But let me ask you a question that I think is relevant to our text. Is it possible to believe in Jesus and not believe in the resurrection and be saved? The answer is no. You say, well, how in the world do you know? Who makes you the authority on it? I'm not the authority. Turn with me to Romans chapter 10. What am I getting back to? The same thing I started with when I talked about the relationship with Mary. It is the word of God that is our test. The resurrection is the evidence that Jesus Christ said uh, uh, is who he said he is. And in Romans chapter 10, I want you to notice this. Jump down to verse 9. Well, I'll read verse 8. But what does the scripture say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, verse 8. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now watch. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord 
and believe in your heart that God, what's the first thing he says? Raised him from the dead. Then what does he say? He'll be saved. That's right. If you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then he says it must be in the heart and also confession. And by the way, that's why I say there truly are no silent Christians. It's impossible not to talk to others about Christ. Impossible. You must believe in the resurrection. Go back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, look at verse 4. I'll go back to 3. Concerning his son, who was born of the descendant of David, that's a physical coming in. See, according to the flesh, he did come in. Why did he come in? Not to procreate children. He came in to save. Verse 4 who was declared the Son of God. How was he declared the Son of God? What was the proof that he was the Son of God? Watch. With the power by, through the instrumentality of, if you will, that's what it's dealing with, through the instrumentality, or as a result of, if you want to translate it that way, a result of what? The resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Folks, the Jesus of the Bible that must be believed is the one that died, was buried, and rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. There are many people that believe in other Jesuses, but unless you believe in the Jesus of the Bible, you haven't got a savior. And that Jesus of the Bible was a resurrected savior. I won't turn them, we'll run out of time. I will mention to you, if you look at... John chapter 2, and if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in John chapter 2 we saw, again, that you destroy the body, I will raise it up, there must be a resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 says that it's part of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 says that there's people that are preaching another Jesus, another gospel. And we're not to be deceived because Satan, listen carefully, transforms himself into an angel of light. So don't be deceived if those who are working for Satan transform themselves into an angel of light. And they look good. Check it out with scripture. We come to the text this morning. We have the witness of Mary Magdalene. Mary of Magdala, who saw the resurrected Savior who clung to him physically. It was a real resurrection. And it went back with the message, basically, of the gospel that we have today, that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is God. He's going back to the Father. Now we know he's back to the Father. And we now can call him Father. We can cry out, as Romans says, Abba, Father, Daddy, Daddy, to God Almighty, because of the work of Jesus Christ when we've come through him but it is only through him, only through the one who was resurrected from the grave. Have you trusted in him? Have you been listening to religion all your life? Have you been hearing about Jesus and in your own mind you've got your image of who Jesus is or should be and that's the Jesus you're clinging to? 
If that's the case, you're going to find yourself in hell saying, Lord, Lord, have I not? But if you're trusting in the one true Savior sent by God, who took on flesh for the purpose of going to the cross to pay the penalty and price for sin, who rose victorious from the grave the third day, and you're trusting in him and him alone, you have salvation in life and truly belong to God. Have forgiveness of sins and will spend eternity with Christ. It's something that everyone in this room has to wrestle with. It's not the Jesus of the world. It's not the Jesus that somebody would like him to be. It's the Jesus of scripture that counts. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you and praise you for the word of God, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which is the revelation of all you want us to know. And I thank you and praise you that you chose to breathe forth the word and have it recorded so that we could see it and understand it. And I pray that everyone here would test the things that I say, Test the things that other people say with the standard of the word of God. That this would be our measuring rod. That, Father, we would not be caught up in trusting some Jesus of some people's imagination, but the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus that you sent who took on flesh and bore the penalty and price of our sins. And I pray, Father, you'd help us to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart and to want to cling to him like Mary did. Help us, Father, to see that while we love the Lord Jesus because he first loved us and we want to cling to that relationship, it's one that can never be lost. But we, like Mary, had to go and tell others about the glorious good news of the new relationship that's possible through trusting in this risen Savior. And I pray, Father, you'd give us boldness to do that. Give us boldness to talk to others and help us not to rely on our own wisdom but to rely on the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God to bring salvation. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.